Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with M. Gail Hamner about her wonderful new book, Imaging Religion in Film, The Politics of Nostalgia, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2011. When we watch film, various visual elements direct our understanding of the narrative and its meaning. The subjective position of each viewer informs their reading of images in a multitude of ways. From this perspective, Religion can be imaged in film and may be found by viewers, but its its interpretation will depend upon the relationships between the media and the audience. In Imaging Religion in Film, Hamner offers a dynamic, theoretically informed methodology to examine the ethico-political dimensions of religion in film. She offers a semiotics of religion that relies on her reading of Charles Peirce and Gilles Deleuze, who aids us in thinking about how viewers react to and transform cinematic images. Through three case studies, including Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzala, Abbas Kiarostami's Taste of Cherry, and the Cohen brothers' The Man Who Wasn't There, she explores how religion is imaged in social and discursive fields through notions of nostalgia and transcendence. In our conversation, we discuss postmodern aesthetics, the pedagogy of self, philosophical gelling through mechanical reproduction, the political economy of film, Deleuzean relations of gaze, situation, and reflection, the space between humanity and animality, confessional ways out of alienation, and ideas about how to watch a film. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with M. Gal Hamner about her new book, Imaging Religion in Film, The Politics of Nostalgia. Uh, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? I'm doing great. Yeah, I really appreciate you setting the time to talk about this this really wonderful book. Um, as somebody who's really interested in uh, religion and f- film as a, a kind of a space of study, uh, I really appreciate all the kind of new things you're doing and challenging all of us to to kind of seek out in our own analysis. So I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks again. 
Thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, so uh, the typical way we start these uh, conversations is um, we try to get a little bit of uh, background on, on you as a person. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested uh, in the study of religion, um, perhaps people that have been influential in either your approach or in the kind of things you like to study. Um, so, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that? I certainly can. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in North Carolina um, in Raleigh in an area where being Christian, in fact, being Presbyterian was sort of taken for granted. Um, so I didn't have to think very much about what religion was or what it meant to me. It was just in the air down there, south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and I went to uh, college and minored in religion. I went to Duke University and I actually became a biochemist. Um, so science was my first life, my first career, my first love. But religion was there as a second major and it was basically ethics. It was biomedical ethics um, at Duke University. Um, but when I was out in the field working as a biochemist, I continued to read theology, which had been my upper-level seminars um, in my undergraduate career, and got more and more interested in what I now retrospectively call the philosophical side of religion. I wasn't interested in theology per se as a theologian. I don't think I've ever really been a theologian, but I was definitely interested in the large conceptual rubrics that theology was putting forward as what counted as religion, what counted as belief, what counted as normativity. I ended up going to seminary at Boston University, and that was a mistake, actually, um, not, because, <laughs> not because it was a bad two years. They were in many ways the best two years of my life. But what I think, in retrospect, I was, had been aiming for was a secular master's program in religion. But I found myself there in Boston, surrounded by an incredible um, diversity of believing types of people in, in the seminary there. I took a whole bunch of philosophy of religion courses. I was most influenced by Harry Oliver, um, who taught Whitehead and Bergson um, and Buber. Um, and so I was very influenced by Peirce and James and Whitehead, um, did my master's thesis on comparing um, the Boston personalists uh, to the American pragmatists <clears throat> and uh, what didn't have very much to do with religion there, except these, again, these large conceptual rubrics about um, normativity, basically, what was valuable, what was the most, the best good, the best way to live one's life. I ended up going to my doctoral program back at Duke University, where, again, I got absorbed by the graduate program in literature there, so much more interested in philosophy than in theology, but always philosophy um, as framed by this question of why religion is this persistent cultural presence. Um, so I call myself a cultural theorist of religion. So at Duke, I was uh, continued my interest in Peirce. I um, developed the manuscript that became my first book, American Pragmatism, a Religious Genealogy. Um, but I was also heavily influenced by Deleuze and Foucault scholarship there at Duke. Um, so those larger sort of uh, the Marxian lineage of critical theory was in the backdrop in the frame of that book about American pragmatism. Um, but always with that central question of what is the cultural work of religion and how do these uh, religious sentiments, these religious practices enter into cultural narratives um, that don't immediately seem religious. This, this book is, is different, but now learning more about kind of some of the background is very much connected to your earlier work. 
Uh, I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us how this project started to develop as a book. You're, you're, you're explicit in, in your kind of introduction about um, how you got kind of set up in the study of religion in film. Um, but perhaps you, you could kind of give us some background about how this started to then uh, formulate as a book. I was asked by Duke to develop a course on religion and film. And it was um, transferring that from Duke to Syracuse that I think really uh, became a sticking point for me in, in wanting to think in a book format about how to teach religion and film. Even though this book is not really a guide for teaching, it certainly came out of the classroom experience and is why I talk about film as a pedagogy of self. So it was trying to figure out how to do um, at least two things at once in the classroom, and that is both interrogate the very concept of religion um, and teach students how to read film as a text and not just absorb it as entertainment. Um, and the coming together of those two pedagogical and hermeneutical paradigms um, is what produced the book. Now, um, the, the field of religion and film... Uh, <laughs> It's it's fairly developed. There's a journal dedicated to it. There's tons of, of books on this now. Um, in, in your introduction, you you kind of give us your assessment of of this as a field. Could you yes. could you kind of uh, describe what your what your viewpoint is? Right? How do you see kind of the trajectories of people who work in this field, and perhaps um, where we could go, or what what you're trying to push us to do? I want to say that I think the field has developed even more in the past four years since the book was in press and then um, has been published. So there's much more diversity even now than there was um, at the time. But it was my sense in the years of writing this book and um, even more pragmatically in the years of trying to find a textbook to use in my course for Syracuse University that many of the books out there in religion and film seem to equate religion with Christianity. Um, and so that was that's part of my introduction work is to think about um, why is it that uh, religion in American culture so often means Christianity um, and also to think about how we could approach the study of film in a way that did not assume any one lineage, any one theological lineage to that word religion. Um, so many of the textbooks, I, I used Margaret Miles' book for a while. I used it at Duke without complaint. I used it at Syracuse for a couple of years. I think the second year I used it, I had visceral complaints from the students that it was, it was too Christian in its orientation. Um, so I had to think, okay, I can't, I can't really use, there isn't a textbook really that, um, that is, that both interrogates the concept of religion and, um, applies that interrogation to, um, images, film images. Um, so that's what I had to, to work through in my book. Yeah. And so in this, in this conversation, you talk about, uh, that, that we really must attend to these assumptions we have about religion. Um, could you talk a little bit about your conception of religion as a category and um, what you're trying to do in the book? I'm interested in the way that religion as a general concept is a relational category, and in being a relational category is therefore a category invested with a lot of cultural power. And so in 
in trying to analyze both what is indexical in a film about religion, but also what images might set off um, my viewers, my students, um, and myself in terms of religion, which may not be what the director thought was indexical about religion. That then becomes the beginning of a, a, a conversation about how the concept of religion is moving across a very particular cultural terrain. Um, and so instead of just seeing um, films as, okay, so let's say something that came up in the religion and film conference just recently, right? A dinner table is the Eucharist, um, which sort of makes me cringe just a little bit, right? Um, the dinner table is the Eucharist for a certain set of, of people, right? For a certain audience, um, and maybe for that director. Um, but for me, instead of making that assumption of saying a dinner table is um, a Eucharistic setting, I would rather pose it as a question, right? And say, in what sense is this dinner table a Eucharistic setting? For which kind of audience? For which kind of filmmaker? Is it a Eucharistic um, setting? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm interested in... Um, then by developing a, a set of questions around the relationship between the viewer and the film images of positioning the film as a text that can then teach the self about the self, about the constitution of the self at a particular particular cultural moment and a particular cultural time. Um, so it's not that I um, identify with certain characters in the film, it's that I open myself as a viewer to what the film text is saying to me in a way that destabilizes my own assumptions about what religion is, about what um, a man is, what a woman is, um, you know, gender categories, political categories. Um, and I, I do that through analyzing the film images along with the form of the film. So not just the image itself, but the way the cinematography is operating sequentially in the film. Um, and through a set of questions that um, are set up between the viewer and the film text itself. Related to all of these issues is uh, uh, what you call the pedagogy of the self or yes. pedagogy of self. Pedagogy itself, yeah. Yeah, could could you kind of outline what what this, uh, how you use this in your book, and what you what you mean by this? Do we see a film as saying something essential about religion, or we de do we see a film as saying something absolutely unessential about religion? There seem to be um, two ways of analyzing it. In other words, relativism or essentialism, two ways of analyzing what religion is in film. Um, and I saw both of those as unhelpful approaches. Um, and so wanted to hold on to the reality of the concept of religion as this cultural movement, this cultural force, um, and wanted then to ask ask, uh, what is the position of the viewer in relationship to this film text? I'm drawing from Foucault in his late lectures on the hermeneutic of the subject, um, where he talks about constituting the ethic of self. Um, and what I grasp from Foucault is that the ethic of self is, is not a concept with any essential meaning, and it's not a concept that self deconstructs in this Derridian autoimmunity. Okay, so it's not essential and it's not relative, but rather the ethic of self is something that moves along the bodies of viewers and the film text, but outside of ontology. Um, and so... Um, if we acknowledge uh, with Foucault that pedagogy is something that's anchored in an ethic of self, is something that's um, about this constitution of the self, um, then we can cut through this dilemma of essentialism versus relativism um, 
And as uh, I, I draw from Henry Giroux, actually, who's a pedagogical theorist who talks about um, the need to critique subject positions and social practices and relations of power. And it's this critique, I think, that's going on in the way that I want to read film as a pedagogy of self. The other theoretical component that you that you use here that I think a lot of people that are interested in this field will really benefit from is your um, your use of Deleuze in his kind of rereading of Peirce. Um, yes. So could you, uh, for, for listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with these figures, could you, could you give us a little bit of uh, how uh, their theory of semiotics uh, can help us think about film? Yes. Um, Peirce has um, a triadic philosophy which operates at multiple levels. So it operates at an ontological level, it operates at an experiential level, it operates at a psychological level, and it operates at a cosmological level. Um, I'm most interested in the experiential level, or what I, at the end of the book, call the phenomenological level. Um, in this three-part system, he has these these uh, categories that he calls firstness, secondness, and thirdness, where firstness is the realm of the possible, secondness is the realm of a, a kind of dyadic relationship. Um, the example that he gives that seems to hit with most students is when you, you lean up against a door and you notice that it's not opening, um, and so it's that force, that resistance, um, any experience of force or resistance without coming to an explanation of it is secondness. And then thirdness is giving a name to it. Oh, my little brother is on the other side of the door and is keeping it um, locked from me, right? That's thirdness. So possibility is um, firstness, reaction is secondness, and um, conceptual thought or um, meaning, signification is thirdness. Um, so what Deleuze does in um, in Peirce's categories is he um, he kind of undercuts Peirce's Kantianism a little bit, and he also um, uh, puts it much more in process. There is a process in Peirce, but Deleuze is much more fluid, um, drawing from Bergson than, um, than Peirce was. And so uh, Deleuze takes these concepts of first and secondness and thirdness um, and applies them uh, both to the the film text itself um, and to our experience of the film. So on the level of our experience of the film, um, there is the firstness of the signaletic material. There's the secondness of the, the construction of a relationship between the viewer and the screen. And, and then there's the, the signification that comes from, um, from the story, um, which we might call narrative, but Willis is always going to want to say is an excess of narrative is affective, right? Not just um, linguistic. Um, and and then there's uh, the level of the film text itself, and these are uh, where I go into the three relations, relations of gaze, relations of situation, and re- relations of reflection. Uh, this is from Deleuze's book, Cinema 2, um, and he, he looks at relations of gaze as um, uh, basically um, how do we see the, how, do, how do characters look at each other in the film, right? So how does the camera capture um, characters looking at each other, right? And that's firstness. That's um, the point of view, basically. It's um, it's uh, the possibility of the beginning of an interpretation. And then Deleuze talks in terms of secondness as the, rela- the uh, relations of situation. Um, and that's where... Um, 
the camera catches um, the gaze in relationship to a context. And so the viewer is able to see not just the point of view, but the kind of relationship or resistance of that gaze to a situation in the world. Um, and then there's the relation of reflection, um, which are the relations of the relation of gaze to situation. So it's the, um, it's how the camera catches not just the gaze of the character and not just the gaze of the character in resistance or reaction to a situation, but how there's meaning or signification of that relationship of the gaze to a situation. And I know that sounds really complex, but when you start to analyze a scene from a movie, it can make a lot of sense. Um, and so it's helpful for me to see the way in which, um, uh, film form and the sequence of images is pulling out these different relationships, these different semiotic relationships, um, so that it's not just about plot, but it's about the way that cinematography is actually guiding us into an understanding of that plot. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect. And that uh, that kind of reminds me of a point you also bring up about kind of the, the field. Um, and one of, your, one of your thoughts about the field of religion and film is that uh, – our, our, its relationship to film studies. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us what what uh, what's uh, happening in film studies that you think scholars of religion are perhaps missing, or how how can we benefit from looking at the medium uh, of film, right? Thinking it, uh, of film as a particular way of transmitting meaning, as opposed to reading it simply as a, a narrative. I mean, film studies certainly is is a field, as I talk about in the book, that. Um, which has foreclosed any discussion of religion. So let me start with that perspective. Um, and that is uh, that film studies arose um, at a time where um, where scholars were very sensitive to a Marxian critique of, of science and of um, the assertion of knowledge power from hegemonic forces. And so they saw film as a way of performing ideology critique. But in performing ideology critique, many film scholars from the um, 60s up through the 90s really had no use for um, the concept of religion at all, except to unveil it as um, um, as a hegemonic force, right? So they didn't see it as doing any productive cultural work at all. I, I find too much in um, in religion and film uh, that the plot is assumed or the reading of the plot um, seems to occur rather transparently. And what I what I have learned from film theory, and this is larger than, than film studies, but film theory all the way back to Eisenstein and, and Pudolfkin, right, is this um, really close and wonderful uh, attention to the way in which an, um, an image and even more so the cutting, right, the sequence of images um, uh, conveys meaning. And then the, there's the whole question which Deleuze gets into of how exactly does that work? Because it's not working in the way that um, reading a sequence of words is conveying meaning. There are all sorts of oblique um, and cultural connotations that are entering into the sequence of images. Um, and so paying attention to film form. Um, so reading an image, a still image, is one thing, but then paying attention to film form in terms of the sequence of images is um, something even more that I've learned from film theory over the years. Now, um, the subtitle of your book is The Politics of Nostalgia. And um, for the set of films that you're uh, examining in the book, um, the kind of uh, relational uh, notions of nostalgia and transcendence help kind of formulate a way of understanding what's going on in these films. Uh, Why why nostalgia and transcendence? How are these related to each other? 
Mm. Um, yes, that's a great question. Uh, so I, I came to nostalgia, and this does not enter into the book, um, I came to nostalgia as a way of cutting through the Gordian knot of I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm. Um, so recognizing that this is a, a cultural, uh, very familiar cultural narrative, especially with our undergraduates today, where religion gets associated with the institution and with reified or um, hegemonic forms of religious expression. And many people uh, feeling religious, whatever that means, right? Feeling this grasp for uh, a desire to grasp uh, value, to grasp um, belief in something larger than themselves, but not wanting to anchor that belief or that set of values in a traditional religious institution. Um, and so listening to my students, my undergraduates talk about this over the years and getting increasingly frustrated at not being able to foreclose it or counter it, um, I started looking at uh, the way in which what my students might call spirituality was entering into the sets of films that I was teaching. Um, and I didn't want to get into that whole debate about spirituality in the book, um, which is why it, it occurred to me that there is something um, productive, something generative happening um, with nostalgia and religious expression in films, especially since the late 60s. So especially since the time that citizens, young citizens, students um, had this language of uh, uh, hegemonic institution and, and were positioning traditional Christianity and Judaism in that um, cultural space of a hegemonic institution filmmakers were starting to use what I would term as uh, a nostalgic positioning of religion. Um, and what I mean by that is, is um, uh, something that is reaching back to the past. I just I wrote recently about the Tree of Life in this regard, too, right? That so much of the Tree of Life, Terrence Malick's film, um, is set in the 1950s and draws on the nostalgia of that time, um, even though I think it, it is one of the most powerful theological statements of the 21st century, um, but it's using the force of that nostalgia in part to make that argument. So the films that I look at in the book are all, um, all the characters die, right? They're all dead. So the, the point is not to use these characters as um, uh, as heroes or some kind of prophet or some kind of savior figure. They're not that. Um, and we learn very quickly that they're dead, right? We learn very quickly that they're going to die or that the work of the film is to show their death. Um, and yet still, uh, the way that the images are put together, the way that uh, the character's uh, relationship to life and death is positioned in the film um, is not to uh, um, end with the death or to put the death as, uh, in, in the position of a failure, but is precisely to raise up death as a question about what makes life livable. And in that tension between the death of the character and the question, what makes life livable, you have this nostalgic force that's coming through. And religion, I think, or what my students would call spirituality, is what's entering into that nostalgia. And so people can grab, a viewer, um, viewers of the film, can grab onto or embrace that feeling of nostalgia, not so that they can wallow in the past and leave the theater and go, oh, I wish I lived, you know, 40 years ago, but precisely because um, that nostalgia is ciphered through this question, what makes life livable, and can act as a kind of incentive to work toward what would make life more livable for more of us in the 21st century. 
So that's nostalgia. Um, so transcendence is connected to that specifically in terms of the way I think images are working in the film. Um, and in these particular films, the way in which um, reiteration or reproduction, so photography in The Man Who Wasn't There and in Dersu, no, sorry, photography in Taste of Cherry and um, Dersu Uzala, um, and the writing down of confession, which we hear mostly as voiceover in The Man Who Wasn't There, but which we see as a written text um, at the end of the film. Um, so transcendence um, is is something I, I will say um, I'm still working out. Um, and so <laughs> I, I like what I started to do in this book, but I'm certainly not completely happy with it yet. Um, but I'm interested in a sense of transcendence that is um, a break or a hiatus or a jumping over um, of the uh, continuous flow of experience. Um, but I'm not interested in transcendence as, you know, a leap up into something that is non-material, non-visible, right? What we what Christians might typically think of as heaven, right? Um, but the sense of transcendence where uh, there's a gelling of experience, where something happens that enables someone to, uh, to pause and to, uh, to experience a stop, um, um, a moment of, of, a, um, a, of reflection, a moment of um, reflection is even too strong because uh, it, in, it in implies a sense of naming. Um, uh, of uh, signification, and I'm interested really in, in really something much more quick, like the taking of photographs in Dersu Azala, or like in Taste of Cherry when uh, the main character shoots a picture of the couple toward the end of the film. Um, something as quick as the the click of a shutter, right, is a gelling moment where uh, the the normal experience is stopped, however briefly. Um, and can be used then as uh, a conduit for one's memory and hope. So it's a channel between the past and the future, but over a jump, right? Over like a bridge or a um, some kind of channel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that then enables us to um, to think differently, however briefly. Um, so I'm interested in transcendence as something that is material, but also fragile. Um, and, uh, and can, we can see that operating in film, I think, in the moments where directors uh, pull us out of the continuity of a film text. Now, um, you, so you focus on or, or you kind of uh, apply your, your theoretical framing to these three films um, in the kind of middle section of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of these films, people would probably – uh, a, a average viewer would wonder what is religious about these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, of course, uh, see how it fits into your larger framework. Um, but I, I'm wondering if you could kind of just think more from a kind of a bird's eye perspective uh, and give us your perspective of of what what makes a good film for analysis. Um, because in each of the three chapters that you analyze, um, you focus on issues of production, of distribution, of consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, perhaps how, how do you select a film, uh, or what, what, uh, elements do you, uh, arise that make you think this is a film that I can analyze in a particular form? That's a great question. And one that I struggle with every time I teach my religion. And- <laughs> <laughs> um, so for me, it's, it's two things, and this is going to sound really obvious, but it, it's difficult when you're making a syllabus. Um, a film has to move me. 
Um, and a film has to have something, however tiny, that is indexical to some religious expression because that gives me the little, it's like the sand and the oyster that becomes the pearl, right? Mm-hmm. So like um, in The Man Who Wasn't There, the Coen Brothers film, there's that one scene toward the beginning where you see um, the camera pan down from top to bottom, a crucifix, and then it, the camera cuts to the main character, Ed Crane, and you say, okay, he's looking at a crucifix, but of course they're in church playing bingo. Um, but that one tiny moment um, anchors the film in a certain um, expression of uh, Catholic, I think, um, uh, religious experience in California in the 19-whatever, 1950s. Um, does that matter for my analysis of the film? Not really <laughs> at all. But it's a beginning point that gives me a cultural context. Um, similarly, for, say, uh, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, Spring, the film by um, Kim Kaduk, um, it's it's clearly a Buddhist film. Is Kim Kaduk a good Buddhist? No, I don't think so. I actually think he's a really um, he's somebody who's much more interested in analyzing violence and masculinity and how interesting that he's using Buddhism as a cipher for analyzing violence and masculinity. Um, but that gives me, you know, it gives me an anchor. It gives me something to say, okay, it's legitimate for me to use this in a religion and film class. Um, but then the second part, the film has to move me. And that generally takes me to types of films that are not Hollywood blockbusters. So not face off. I'm not going to spend class time on some like John Woo's. I'm just not right. I'm much more interested in, um, films like Kiristami who Jeffrey Cheshire and others call him a, a cinema of questions, right? I'm much more interested. The Coen brothers too, I think are, um, they generate questions. They generate, um, rubrics that are complex and which don't have pat answers and in which people can have legitimate disagreements and walk away still friendly with each other. Um, about the film because the film can be read in many different ways. And that to me, just again, for a pedagogy itself, seems really important. It seems important that we're each able um, to uh, uh, fray the edges of our assumptions about ourselves in different ways, right? Um, and the classroom is an important space for me for us to be able to do that together. Um, related to this, and this isn't something you really uh – discuss in the book, but I was hoping you could kind of give us your perspective on it. Um, so in, in the book and in religious studies more generally, we talk a lot about theory, um, but we don't frequently talk about methods. Um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of give us uh, your approach, right? How, how do you watch a film? What, what kind of uh, method would you say uh, works for you? Do you sit down and watch the film the whole way through? Do you watch it five times? Do you you know, stop each scene. Um, could you kind of give us some some insight into how you are are watching these films? I guess. Right. Um, I watch films all the way through the first time without stopping. Um, this actually goes back to one of my professors in seminary who said that we should read every assignment three times. Um, the first time not letting your eyes stop at all, basically just skimming through the second time reading carefully um, for to understand the text and the third time to break it down and analyze it. Um, and that was a helpful rubric for me for reading texts. Uh, who in graduate school has time to read <laughs> right. three times, right? Uh, so please, people listening to this, if anyone listens to this, don't take that. <laughs> uh, but for, for films that I end up writing about, uh, that certainly is what tends to happen. Um, so what I've learned from reading film theory like Bazin, like Pudovkin, um, is, uh, 
that meaning happens on me in a film and it's happening in a paraconscious way. And that's why film is a pedagogy of self, that it changes me in ways that I'm not fully conscious of. How do I get to that? That's what you're asking with the method, right? So the first time I, I watch all the way through and I allow the film simply to wash over me. Um, and then I go back and I watch it again for the moments that strike me the most and I note them down, but I still don't stop the film um, if I have a DVD. Um, and it's only when then I write, I, I do some free writing, I think about the film and what interests me in the film. And then I have a, a set of questions, right? How is it that I, why is it that I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of a film I've seen recently. <laughs> well, we just watched The Godfather with our kids. We just showed them The Godfather for the first time, right? How is it that I know Apollonia is going to get blown up in that car? Um, what is, you know, what is going on with that marriage in, in Sicily, Mike's marriage in Sicily, right? Um, and you know, then I go back to the film text and I go, okay, how, how is the cinematography, how is the film form and the construction of each individual image helping to um, work on me in a way that leads me to think X and not Y about the plot, okay? Um, so that's what I do. And then I, um, I try to be very careful and I try and keep it open um, so that people can disagree with me. Um, but I think all film theorists kind of get invested in their own readings, right? <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a um, detriment of the job. <laughs> um, so maybe you could walk us through a little bit, uh, kind of give us a little bit of, uh, of why these films, uh, you select these films. So the, the first film uh, you look at is uh, Akira Kurosawa's uh, Dersu Uzala. Um, now, um, I mean, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh, who uh, Kurosawa was for people who don't know and, and where this film fits in. Because uh, most most people, uh, even people who are perhaps familiar with him, uh, wouldn't necessarily have seen this film. So why, why this film? What, how did you see this fitting into kind of your larger theoretical framework? Yes. Um, when I discovered this film, I was blown away because what I knew about Kurosawa was, of course, his samurai films. Um, those are the ones that come over to the States. And um, I have a good friend, actually, who will insist that Kurosawa only did good samurai films and everything else that he did was not worth watching at all. <laughs> even though I, I desperately tried to get this friend to watch even Kurosawa's earlier pre-samurai um, urban um, urban problem films, basically, um, right after, during and after World War II. Um, when I saw Dersu Uzala, um, I don't even remember what took me to the film. I probably saw a reference to it and something that I was, I was reading. I was blown away by the visuals. I was blown away by the way um, that landscape took on a much larger role than even it had played in the samurai films. And of course, Kurosawa is known for um, nature being another protagonist in his films. But the, the region, um, the Azuri region in Siberia uh, on the border with China, um, a really complex political area. It's just, it's just gorgeous and vast um, and Led me to uh, led me into the film. Just took me, moved me, right? Just moved me. Um, and the more I saw this film, the more I thought about it, um, which then led me to read about it. Um, and I do talk in the chapter about how it won um, the best foreign film for that year, but the critics panned it as being um, sentimental and nostalgic. Okay, so when I started seeing that the the critics hated it, that of course enticed me to try and <laughs> I want to work against the critics um, in this particular instance. Um, and I really love the fact um, 
Well, as I say in the in the chapter, this is the first film that he made after he attempted suicide. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, of debate in Kurosawa scholarship about what that suicide even signified, because in a, um, a Shinto Buddhist culture like Japan, it's not necessarily the same kind of existential angst that it is in the United States. On the other hand, his his own approach to filmmaking changed so radically after that suicide attempt um, that it, it certainly was a meaningful life event for him, um, even if it wasn't a, a kind of desperate um, sadness, uh, um, as it might have been read in the United States. Um, <clears throat> So I'm interested in the fact that the the main character, the opening shot of the scene, is basically at the protagonist's gravesite. So we know at the outset that this guy is dead. And so the the whole question through the film is, um, what are we supposed to learn from this guy? Why are we paying attention to the life of somebody who has already died, who in a sense has failed, right? And what I posit in the film is that um, Dersu is teaching um, his friend, Arseniev, um, uh, the difference between things and persons. Um, and so in a world that reifies things, in a consumer capitalist world that reifies things, um, the work of life is to de-reify, is to personify, um, is to see everything, every element, every person, every animal um, as, a, as a person, as um, something that uh, engenders our love and respect. Um, now, you also look at uh, Abbas Kurostami's Taste of Cherry. And here, uh, I, I mean, Taste of Cherry has been looked at from a lot of different angles. Um, how, how did you see this fitting in? Because even though there are some kind of uh, explicit notions of what people generally think of as religion, um, you're not necessarily focusing on, on that aspect of it, right? So why, why, why Taste of Cherry? How, how are you look, thinking about issues of authenticity in relation to culture, the universality of cinema, um, his uh, aesthetic within uh, filmmaking, which um, some perceive as uh, Western, right, or infl- you know, not uh, indigenous? Yes. Uh, um, um, this is a difficult question to ask, to answer, because I've just spent there. Kurosami was just on campus in Syracuse for 10 days, um, last month. Um, and so I actually know more about him and his relationship to religion now than I did when I wrote this chapter. Um, there is a place in the book where I talk about, um, Kurosami saying that, uh, when you bring out the aesthetic, maybe you'll see a reflection of the religious as well. Um, And so that was in my mind when I wrote about this film and also that it is um, a Muslim film. It's an Iranian film. And so it's situated in a Muslim culture. There are things indexical in the film that draw us to that. Um, But of course, yes, it also is um, in being a, a story about human experience, it is more universal. Um, and Kirstami is certainly persistently says that he's interested in human experience and not necessarily the Muslim experience or the Iranian experience. And, and he gets that, he makes a bridge between um, Muslim or Iranian experience and human experience through poetry. Um, and so he crafts his films as poetic enterprises, just as he reads Persian poetry um, over and over again, much more than he reads anything else. Um, and so, but while he's trying to create this, this bridge to human experience, um, 
he's also being critiqued, right, as being too Western. Um, and that's a, that's a persistent problem that I deal with in the beginning of that chapter. Um, what is the relationship between the West and the East? And the, the more that Kiarostami has been accepted in the West, the less he's been accepted as indigenously Iranian, um, even though I would posit, and um, I think Kiarostami would agree, that his claim to be making poetic interventions, poetic um, statements about human experience is itself an oblique and respectful political statement about um, the mm, dogmatisms and political conundrums of the Iranian situation right now. Um, perhaps you could, uh, for people who've never seen Taste of Cherry, give us a little uh, idea about uh, what, what the kind of narrative of the film is. And uh, in, in your kind of analysis, one of the important things you highlight is the kind of notion of place and this kind of uh, distinction between rural and urban environments. Um, yes. Um, okay, so the film, as so many of Kiyosami's films um, have to do with roads and travel, uh, the film shows a man um, in his Range Rover driving all over Tehran. He's actually on the outskirts of Tehran, but you see uh, the city of Tehran sometimes, and you also see it in the distance, um, even when he's out in the countryside. And even when you're in the countryside, you see the detritus of um, construction projects and falling down buildings, etc. So you're never really away from modernity. You're never away from civilization. Um, and so in terms of the, the plot, the protagonist, Mr. Body, who's driving around in his Range Rover, is literally looking for somebody to bury him after he commits suicide. Committing suicide is, of course, against um, Muslim law, and he knows that. Um, and he talks to three people, he, um, and each of these is a representative um, of both an age, a life level, and a social level. So he talks to a young man who's a soldier. He talks to a middle-aged man about the same age as, as Mr. Body, the protagonist, who's a seminarian. And he talks to an older man um, who works as a taxidermist in the Natural History Museum. And each of these three men with whom Mr. Body talks are also, um, they're not uh, uh, Iranian hegemonic citizens. They're um, a Kurd, an Afghani, and a Turk. Um, so there are all sorts of intersections that Kiristami is pulling into this. The soldier runs away. He's scared to death at the request to, uh, to bury him. Uh, the seminarian tries to use the hadith, tries to argue theologically with him um, and talk him out of killing himself. And uh, Mr. Bagheri is much more poetic. He tells a story um, and he talks about the, the love that Allah has for his creatures and for the earth, um, and how can Mr. Body give up the taste of cherry? How can he give up the moonlight and the sunlight, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, Mr. Body does not succeed, um, and yet uh, Mr. Body's message uh, supersedes the conversation with Body and works on us in the audience, I think. Um, and then I, I talk about the coda that Kiristami was actually asked to add to the film um, by Farabi, the Film Institute Film Social. Um, institution in Tehran, um, which shows the production of the film. So it's at springtime, it's no longer fall, and we see, you know, Kiristami doing a sound check, and we see the protagonist who has died um, up and living, and, um, and we see the soldiers who had been marching, playing with flowers and patting each other on the shoulder, and so it ends in this uh, Life Goes On, which is the title of another Kiristami film. Now, in terms of the um, countryside, um, I was interested in, um, in showing how a cultural difference to what I would see as a prevailing film in American, prevailing theme in American films. 
And that's that uh, the countryside is often in American films the place of salvation, right? You leave the city, which is a site of corruption. You get out into the countryside where um, everything is happy and, um, and and spiritual and you're able to find your salvation again, a kind of Walden experience, right? But that's not what's happening in um, Taste of Cherry. And I was interested in trying to draw our attention to that, how um, it's the same ground. The ground uh, outside of Tehran is exactly the same ground as the ground of the city of Tehran. It's just a place where you can stand differently. And so this notion of gaining perspective, um, and I use Marx's German ideology to to read this film um, in this way, but the countryside is a place where you can gain perspective um, on your life without um, having to disavow that you also are a product of modernity or a product of the urban situation. Now, um, the, the final film you look at is uh, the Coen brothers, The Man Who Wasn't There. And the, uh, the Coen brothers uh, seem to be popular among people who, who think about religion. Uh, things like um, his other, uh, other films, A Serious Man, and even uh, No Country for Old Men, and for some, even big, The Big Lebowski. Um, so, uh, but The Man Who Wasn't There uh, doesn't seem to be uh, as easily read within the kind of framework of religion or the religious. Um, so could you tell us how perhaps, uh, or at least kind of give us a glance of what this film is, um, but then what, what, how did you select this film? How did you come to, to think about this film and uh, using your kind of theoretical framework? Right. Um well, it's a, it's using it's nostalgic. It's uh, filmed in black and white. Um, it's filmed in color, actually, and then transferred to a black and white film um, and set back in the 1950s. Um, I, I already said that I was attracted to the crucifix, and so I was, I was interested <laughs> in, in, in the way that there is this tiny little index of, of Christianity, but also, of course, the surprise of the film, which is the voiceover. And the voiceover is a, a trope of film noir, <clears throat> Um, but in this case, we only learn at the end of the film that Ed Crane, the man whose voice we hear, <clears throat> is telling us his confession. And in fact, is, we're hearing his voice of what he's writing putatively um, for a, a men's magazine, which has asked him to, to answer the question, what is it like to know when you're go- going to die, the date of, on which you're going to die, because he's sentenced to be executed for murder. Um, and so when I, you know, as and this is a method question again, right? When I get to the end of the film and I realize that, and I realize that this is, this is confession. Um, this is confession on multiple levels. This is the kind of sensationalized confession of the tabloid, but also a religious confession, um, as he, as Ed is asking really interesting questions and making important statements about, uh, what he was hoping for in his life, what he was aiming for, what he hopes for after he dies. And yes, what it feels like, um, to be approaching one's own death. And so for me, it was the thematic of confession. Um, and the crucifix simply legitimates anchoring that trope of confession in a Christian narrative. Now, one of the uh, kind of important notions that gets played out here is this kind of uh, this, uh, this whole idea of, of humanity, of being human. Um, and it's often kind of uh, put in contradistinction to this idea of kind of being an animal. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk about how this is played out? 
So it, it, what really struck, this is the second time through the film when I'm, I'm recognizing what is really interesting to me is that Ed, who's bumbling through this film, doesn't know what the heck is going on with his life. I mean, he's the most alienated figure um, in, in a kind of stereotypical way, right? A kind of bourgeois alienated figure um, gets yelled at twice. What kind of man are you? <clears throat> So um, that became, you know, repetition is always really important in film. And so that became an interesting moment for me. Um, and as I listened to that question the second and third and fourth time through the film, I realized that the question of humanity was being pitted against animality in the film. Yes. And so um, you have his brother-in-law, the Ed Crane's brother-in-law, um, who is um, an animal. He's, um, but he's a domesticated animal. He's somebody who talks about, you know, fly fishing and the need to make your own flies. And um, he eats blueberry pie until his, you know, he's just um, sated. He rides around on a pig during the wedding. Um, um, he's this uh, kind of disgusting, repulsive, uh, but domesticated animal. Um, and Ed sees Ed, Ed kind of looks at this as one model of being human and says, no, I can't be that. And then there's um, the man who runs uh, Nerdlingers. He's Nerdlingers' husband um, in the department store in the film who also is having an affair with his wife. And Ed, of course, knows this, though he doesn't say anything about it. Um, and Big Dave, who is this guy, tells all sorts of war stories. So he has this hyped up super masculinity. Um, and one of the stories that we hear in the film is of him having to eat a soldier in order to survive. So the soldier has died. And so it's a story of cannibalism. Um, and so not fly fishing and pigs, but actually, you know, this, this hyper masculinity that is even willing to eat one's colleague in order to stay alive, a, a bestial instinct. And Ed looks at this and says, no, I can't be that um, either. And um, uh, then there is the third option, which is Birdie, um, played by um, Johansson, Scarlett Johansson, um, uh, and she is a bird. Um, and of course, I make a connection. The Coens are fabulous in terms of naming, right? So Ed Crane is the protagonist. And Crane, of course, is both a bird and a machine. Um, and so you have that double entendre going on. And um, the woman is Birdie, um, although that's a nickname for her. Um, but she is she's the songbird, but she's a songbird for whom, and she plays the piano, but she doesn't really, she's not artistic. She's a songbird for whom she simply sings on instinct, right? She acts on instinct. She's not an artist. She's not crafting her life in any authentic way. And so Ed is drawn to her, but really is drawn to her music, and he really is drawn to the salvific force of music itself. Um, and so what I deal with in the chapter is the kind of interplay between between his um, attachment to music as a way out of alienation and his use of confession um, to to encase or um, crystallize that uh, attachment to music. Now, in all three chapters, you you really do a very in depth and uh, very kind of perceptive analysis of these films, which obviously we don't have time to go into all of them. Um, but before we wrap up, I, uh, I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to. Uh, Discuss that we weren't able to cover or any kind of uh, things perhaps the book ha has been out for a couple of years perhaps the, uh, in, in new directions that you're taking I know you're still working on film a lot so mm. um, uh, this, the book is a little too compact I think there's there is a, um, a it was sort of um, I was really interested in getting it out um, because I've been thinking about it for so long and yet still uh, 
it was like I was um, trying to do too much in a very small book. Um, and so I think the, the work of the essays that I'm doing now in film are trying to return to these moments, the notion of religion as a general concept, a real concept, um, the notion of transcendence, the notion of nostalgia. And I'm trying to unpack them through different films um, and different essay projects. Um, so that's one thing that I'm working on. I'm also doing a completely different project at the moment, which is looking at religion in the public sphere and trying to re-theorize what the public sphere is today in our um, hyper-mediated and digital media world. Um, so a theory of the public that is that does not go to Habermas and Rawls, but that looks at um, media theory and communication theory. Um, well, Gail, thank you so much for uh, making the time to talk to us. And uh, I really hope everyone picks up this book. It's definitely an interesting read. And uh, thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks for your patience. That was my conversation with Gail Hamner about Imaging Religion in Film, The Politics of Nostalgia, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2011. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.